0: Hello and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. Today, we have another episode of Discourse, which is the RSP's monthly episode on how religion is being discussed in the news media. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today are two longtime friends of the RSP. We have one of our interviewers, Dan Gorman, joining us, and we also have Paul Francois Tremlett who has been in many interviews as well. Um, I will let them introduce themselves, even though you are probably quite familiar with their voices already. But uh, Dan?
1: Yes, good morning. My name is Dan Gorman. I am a history PhD candidate at the University of Rochester, and I've had material published by the Religious Studies Project since 2017, I believe. And Paul? Paul? I'm
2: Paul Francois Tremlett. I'm a senior lecturer in religious studies at the Open University. I've uh, a few interviews on here since probably about 2013, and that's just because I'm old. <laughs> Delighted to be here anyway with Andy and Dan.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Um, it's a great group, and we are discussing a few interesting topics. It, they're a little different, um, but we'll see. You know where it goes and see what we can do and kind of tying everything together we will start I think with Paul uh, if you want to first kind of dive into the articles that you were wanting to discuss and then we'll shift from there
2: what I what I'd like to talk about uh, this morning this afternoon this evening depending what <laughs> when you're when you're listening and watching this is the forthcoming Filipino elections and the Sort of involvement or entanglement of religious institutions and, and uh, in the political campaigning that's going on. So the election will take place on the 9th of May and as well as the uh, president being elected there's going to be a sort of host of national regional and provincial candidates that are also standing and you may be aware that the present incumbent of Malacanang uh, Rodrigo Duterte is uh, Quite a controversial figure, both in the Philippines and internationally. Um, and before, for example, before being elected as president, he was mayor of Davao in Mindanao. And um, evidence gathered by Human Rights Watch and others suggested that he had run a death squad, a vigilante group responsible for killing hundreds of petty criminals, including children. Um, and as president of the Philippines, is prosecuted a so-called war on drugs uh, that has seen thousands of people killed across the archipelago. And these killings have, according to Amnesty International's General, uh, Secretary-General Agnes Calamar, become the norm under the Duterte administration uh, and indeed has led to it being referred to the International Criminal Court. So, um, obviously, you can tell I'm coming from a particular perspective from, from that presentation, but mm-hmm. the, the, I think the, the factual basis for the things I've said is there. Now, Duterte himself is not running for re-election, but his eldest daughter, Sara Duterte-Carpio, is running for the position of vice president. And she is running with Bong Marcos, the son of the late dictator Ferdinand E. Marcos. Who was ousted in 1986 by the People Power Revolution, and Bong Bong is running for the top job. And um, they're currently ahead in the polls. Uh, and one of the things that going on with the campaigning well underway is that various rights groups and organizations are teaming up with friends and partners and, and looking to monitor the running of the election. Uh, and the question I set myself for today is what's happening vis a vis religion? The Catholic Church is. Probably the most powerful uh, institution in the country. And I think there's quite a few interesting things to reflect on uh, currently. Now, if we take the Marcos period as a sort of touchstone, the uh, 70s and 80s, um, the landscapers, the, the religious landscape, the cultural landscapes changed a lot since then. Um, the Catholic Church remains the dominant religious institution, but the if you like, the model of the church of the poor that characterised much of its work in the 70s and 80s with its sort of message of decolonialism uh, and liberation, its, its uh, um, promotion of ecumenical dialogue with Protestant uh, churches, its, 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 its uh, pr- uh, promotion of dialogue with the left. That's really lost ground. It's lost ground to the prosperity gospel which is today articulated by charismatic uh, Pentecostal-style groups such as El Shaddai, right. whose leader, brother Mike Velade has backed the Marcos Duterte Carpio ticket in the, in the campaign. Interestingly, though, the uh, Catholic bishop Teodoro Bakani, who is a spiritual advisor to El Shaddai, has disowned Velardi's endorsement of Marcos, saying that it was maling mali, which means basically very wrong. Now, one of the interesting things that's happened is the Catholic Bishops' Conference of the Philippines has issued a pastoral letter, and it's addressed to voters, uh, and, and it's urging them to follow the path of truth, goodness, justice, and peace when they vote. And I think this surely will come up uh, when you guys are discussing um, yeah. the sort of U- Ukraine-Russia uh, situation, um, The letters titled The Truth Will Set You Free, it was released on February the 25th, which is the 33rd anniversary of the People Power uh, Revolt. And in the letter, the bishops state the following. They state that they are appalled by the blatant and subtle distortion, manipulation, cover-up, repression and abuse of the truth, like historical revisionism, the distortion of history or its denial, the proliferation of fake news and false stories, disinformation, the seeding of false information and narratives in order to influence the opinion of people, to hide the truth, to malign and blackmail people. There are troll farms which sow the virus of lies. Now, these are pretty strong words, um, and they refer essentially to the rehabilitation of Marcos. Uh, For example, under Duterte, Marcos... So his remains were reburied in the in the Hero Cemetery, the Libigian Lamangan Bayani in Manila, which is reserved for uh, people who have served in the military. Um, uh, wide claims that Marcos's own war record was faked, and and it also points to the attempt to rewrite the Marcos period as a golden age, uh, as if the killing was an industrial scale scale larceny just never happened. So all this points, I think, to a new terrain on which religious groups and institutions uh, are are engaged and entangled, and that's information, right? Uh, It's information, disinformation, conspiracy theory, proliferation, all involved in the proliferation of new media. Um, And connected with that last month, the mayor of Manila spoke out to remind young Muslims uh, of the Marcos years, urging them not to you know, not to not to necessarily believe what they're reading uh, on Facebook or, or, or some such, but to talk to their elders about what the Marcos period was actually like. Uh, a recent press release by the human rights group Carapatan condemned the filing of cyber libel charges against journalists and researchers from the Filipino news uh, news website Rappler. By the Kingdom of Jesus Christ Church. Now, the members of this church filed the charges against uh, a number of, not just Rappler, but a number of relig- uh, a number of individuals, including the regional head of, uh, of Rappler in De Espina Verona, the Mindanao Bureau Coordinator Herbie Gomez, the former researcher Vernice Tantuko, and um, perhaps significantly given who we are and, and who we speak to, our primary audiences, uh, Ateneo de Manila, university professor and sociologist of religion, Jay Cornelio, who I know and, and, and is a good friend. Uh, and those cyber libel charges were filed against these individuals in, 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 in relation to reports on cases of sexual abuse involving the church and its leader, Apollo Kibalo. Now, Kibaloi is a spiritual advisor to and a close ally of Duterte. And according to Karapatan, the cyber libel charges are part of the government, Duterte government's actual uh, track record of attacks on Rappler and part of efforts to keep disinformation unchecked in the upcoming elections. And just to conclude, um, a more progressive candidate, the current vice president, Lenny Robredo, Um, has been forced to defend herself from accusations of politicising the church. This at a time when momentum behind her campaign appears to be growing. So obviously that's a snapshot in time. Every week that passes in the campaign, the sort of landscape changes, the geography changes, the actors uh, proliferate. Uh, But I think what that little snapshot shows us is... Our contemporary world is, is, a, is a, uh, a, a, t- a terrain of information and information, sort of uh,
0: yeah.
2: information, disinformation, and, and religious institutions and groups and actors are entangled in that as much as sec- with and alongside, and infused with secular actors. And I, I, and I think it's, I actually think uh, it's quite it's interesting, but it's also somewhat terrifying.
1: Um, um, anyway. Well, Paul, uh, listening to your comments about the Philippines, of which I can't claim to be an expert in any way, but one thing that stands out is the potential alignment of prosperity gospel preachers with authoritarian figures. Now, I am speculating here, But I do wonder if the prosperity gospel, with its emphasis on individual behavior, not collective activity, and um, the lack of emphasis on changing institutions, I do wonder if that prosperity gospel is more appealing to authoritarian figures because it could make people less interested in unified political opposition. Hypothetically, it could shift the emphasis onto the individual away from organizing the kind of social welfare, social democratic, you know, even unionization in the economic sphere, the things that could challenge an authoritarian figures rise to power. And I think that certainly is relevant to trends we're seeing in the United States, authoritarian tendencies um, among prosperity gospel preachers here, um, far right Christian figures. And I guess it also speaks to this idea that you hear about in the media of there being a, Sort of a global moment of authoritarianism i don 't know if we've fully unpacked the way the prosperity gospel can fit into that, and I think I think this is something we need to study further
0: yeah, I think that's a really good point, Dan, because shifting the the sort of onus of affecting anything really to the individual really kind of frees up the the governing bodies of any sort of obligation to provide what we might consider to be, you know, adequate support, resources, et cetera. And something that at least seems to me to be kind of prevalent, kind of rather prevalent in the US, with our focus, extreme focus on individualism and the success of one person at the expense often of everybody else. And so I do think that that was actually something Paul that kind of stood out to me too with if I don't know if you have maybe more to say or other thoughts on the prosperity gospel in this way, because I was thinking, too, of because how, how you're thinking about their work to sort of impact and influence voters right in this way. And thinking back to and maybe the the following the path of goodness and truth that wasn't quite in that same vein. Right. It wasn't from that was that was the Catholic Church. Right. But at the same time, there's there's still the sense of putting all of that work on on the voters to kind of make things happen, which can be can can lead to certain, you know, all sorts of things and potentially be very successful in a number of ways. And there's a lot to think about in terms of how voters, individual voters kind of come together, work in these groups and how they're Locally, kind of affecting certain types of change, particularly through different types of media. But at the same time, I do think that individualized focus is also—I mean, at least for me—is something that that certainly stands out.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're 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 both onto onto something. But I also I also wonder. I suppose it's what's the extent of local contextual factors playing a big role in, in what's happening or whether we can say something quite general about uh, prosperity gospel and particular form, particular authoritarian political forms uh, you know, everywhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in what threads we could take from that to then think about orthodoxy uh, vis-a-vis the Russia-Ukraine conflict and what, what there, what the entanglements between authoritarianism and, and, and religious forms are. So I'm really I'm really keen to hear what you have to say on that, Dan. Certainly. Well, I should say first,
1: as a final comment about our previous thread, obviously an individualistic religion doesn't have to lead toward fascism or uh, kleptocracy or some other thing. Certainly I know many people who are politically conservative and are focused very much on an individual model of society who are not authoritarian figures. Thank- thankfully they are not super common. But – um I think that I think that was I just wanted to say that as a as a qualifier, but it is a strain that's out there. So pivoting to Ukraine, and again, I'll preface my remarks by saying that I am not an expert on the Orthodox Church, um, but I am a news junkie. So here are some trends that I have observed. There have been several articles about Ukrainian individuals getting married during the beginning of the war despite the combat situation so there was an article in the washington post two weeks ago by siobhan o'grady and Konstantin kudov talking about a wedding where the bride and groom were both in combat fatigues it was outside the wedding was performed by an orthodox church but everybody there was a journalist in a flak jacket or a member of the territorial defense forces so there has been that depiction of orthodox life continuing despite wartime Looking globally at the Orthodox community, now the Orthodox Church is Episcopalian in the sense of that it's run by bishops and there is no single central authority. So in that way, global orthodoxy is like the Anglican Communion. Um, the Like the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Patriarch of Constantinople has some spiritual significance as the first among equals, but he has no binding ecclesiastical authority over, say... The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and so we have these different segments in sometimes uneasy relationship with each other. Now, cribbing here from the Orthodox Church of Amer- in America's website, there are sort of three different branches of Russian Orthodoxy in the United States. There is there are those who are ethnically, you know, ancestrally Russian Orthodox within the Orthodox Church in America, which has people from multiple. Ethnic strands. There is the patriarchal parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is its own group, and then there is the larger Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, which is in direct communication, direct communion with the the Russia-based Russian Orthodox Church. Now that branch um, has shown itself to be the most pro-Putin, and the patriarch of their church has put out comments that are basically. Following the Putin line almost exactly. But then, if you look at other branches of Orthodoxy in America, um, in the diaspora, the leader of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the USA, Archbishop Daniel, very clearly has come out against the war. Similarly, you have the Ukrainian Catholic Church in the United States. It gets a little confusing here because the Ukrainian Catholic Church is not in direct communion with Rome, but you know, if you looked at their churches, it would look more orthodox. They've also come out against the war. And the the really interesting thing I find is that Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who is the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, has specifically called out Tucker Carlson for pushing misinformation on the news, which is a very interesting a really interesting situation because even in so-called liberal Christianity, and I don't know if I would count Orthodoxy as liberal Christianity, you don't frequently see American pastors calling out Tucker Carlson by name uh, for pushing white supremacist, pro-Vladimir Putin, pro-frankly fascist talking points, and so that was that was really striking to read about. Uh, so the, the quote that Gutziak said was. They, meaning American viewers, can be critically informed and call out people like Tucker Carlson and others who are enchanted by President Putin. And so it made me think, sort of, of calling out past figures like McCarthy or Joseph McCarthy or mm-hmm. Father Charles Coughlin in the 1930s. But the last thing I'll say about the Ukraine crisis, in at least in the United States, is that several historians of religion have noticed the pro-Putin comments that have come from American evangelicals on the far-right conservative Christians over the last decade or so. Anthea Butler has an essay for MSNBC where she talks about this alignment of far-right American Christianity with Putin because evangelical Christians who are politically conservative are looking to Vladimir Putin as an exemplar. So in a pivot from the days of evangelicals demonizing Russians as godless communists, you now have evangelical Christians upholding the new Russia, the non-communist but still authoritarian government of Vladimir Putin, because Putin has cracked down on LGBTQ people and is talking about the importance of Christian morals and the traditional family. Now, I could be wrong. I don't think Vladimir Putin has a religious bone in his body. He's using it to promote an ethno-nationalist vision of Russia, which he is now trying to use to smother Ukraine and claim that Ukraine is just a mere offshoot of this larger mother Russia, you know, or even with the Orthodox Church saying that they don't have the right to an Orthodox Church. And indeed, that's been a point of fissure in the past between the Russian Orthodox Church in, in Russia, which claims that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is theirs. And the Greek Orthodox Church, you have the Patriarch of Constantinople saying that, well, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has the right to be its own free, independent church. And another thing that stood out to me, Heather Cox Richardson, an American historian who has become a rather popular blogger in the last year during COVID, um, she talked about how Franklin Graham and other leading American evangelicals have celebrated Vladimir Putin, frequently about the LGBTQ issue. In 2014, Franklin Graham said that President Obama and his attorney general, quote, have turned their backs on God and his standards, and many in the Congress are following the administration's lead. This is shameful, end quote. So I think, again, there are clear signs that evangelical Christians in the United States who are discomfited by the changing racial demographics of this country, the changing gender and sex mores, they see Putin as someone to be admired. And that's frightening, because the implication then is that more important than being peaceful or following some of the edicts actually in the gospel, it's more important to promote a singular vision of how people can live. What frightens me the most is that you see the religion being weaponized in support of, I'm not sure if you want to call it, I mean, it's a form of ethno-nationalism. It's also a form of patriarchy, of promoting, you know, heterosexual nuclear families above everyone else. It's essentially a threat to pluralism. And as somebody who believes very strongly in pluralism, we need to talk about this honestly as a culture.
2: I I just uh, agree with everything Dan was saying at the end there about pluralism and and diversity. Uh, You know, it's, it's who we are. It's what the world is. Um, but I also wanted to just pick up that thread about Tucker Carlson and 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 how in, in common with the material I was talking about, we've got information being called out as uh, as disinformation, as the deliberate spreading of, of, of disinformation. I, I this seems to be I and I was thinking to myself, well, if we went back to 2007. Um, The idea, you know, what would the new atheists who were, you know, the new kids on on the Mm -hmm. religion block in in, in those days, what would they be saying about religious actors calling out disinformation? Um, I I, I don't know. I don't know if that's I don't know why that popped into my head.
0: No, it's an interesting thread, though, to to think about, because. Yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, but now that you said that, that it would be really kind of interesting to compare some, some of those, those discourses with new atheists or just, you know, new religious movements, right? Uh, when they were at least more prevalent, prevalently kind of coming on the global scene for everyone to the current discourses on, on disinformation, which unfortunately we've seen a lot of, uh here, uh, fake news has become sadly, deeply ingrained here in the U S and elsewhere, obviously. But, um, it's one of those things that I think will have a greater longevity than anybody maybe really suspects because it's an idea like that. That's hard to, because, well, it's so easy to use and so easy to completely discount somebody else. But between what Paul, what you were discussing, you know, with the prosperity gospel and Dan, what you've looked at with how the orthodoxy, the discourses around, uh, orthodoxy in the U S are tied to this, you know, sort of ethno nationalism also happening right in Russia. But something that kind of stood out to me is there was kind of early days of this appearing in the news, these discussions regarding the, um, orthodox church in Russia, was the the fear and concern over what is referenced in a Washington Post article by the Moscow Patriot, Patriarch, Moscow Patriarch, as wanting to protect Russian people from, you know, dark and hostile external forces, is the quote, that seek to, quote, uh, divide our common historical fatherland. And this isn't new rhetoric, right? Like this, this you know, stark division of us, the good, bad. Um, we see this a lot, but it's something that, I mean, it's something that's been very prevalent here in the U.S., you know, just more generally, um, this sort of increasing fear and resentment, hatred of the other, and the other really being any, anybody who is not Christian, not white, Right. So there's definitely a lot of overlap between both of those. Dan, did you have something that you wanted to say?
1: Well, first of all, whenever I hear people speak about the fatherland or the motherland, sometimes it's interchangeable, but I always cringe a little bit because there's bad historical precedents when people start talking about that. And again, I, I don't want to suggest that there is a singular view within Russian orthodoxy Again, no. no no institution, no no group of people is monolithic. I talk about this with my students all the time, right? Um, but I do find it interesting how you have, here in the United States, a branch of the Russian Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, the head of it following the line of a foreign leader. And there are these interesting questions of, you know, well, who's the one promoting real misinformation, right? They say, oh, the Western media is promoting misinformation, and well, the case of Tucker Carlson that's arguably true, um, but it, it's this sort of Orwellian thing you accuse your enemy of doing what you're actually doing yourself. Um, the other thing I'll say is that misinformation of course is not new you know yellow journalism, bad journalism helped cause the spanish American war more than one hundred and twenty years ago but The internet does change that. Paul, you talked about troll farms in the Philippines earlier, and certainly you can now have foreign actors interfering in domestic politics of any country, Philippines included, um, by hiding their their internet provider address. I don't think the internet is all bad. I mean, certainly we've seen the internet organize massive resistance to what Putin's doing. Um, People say, oh, I'm afraid of technology. I'm not afraid of technology. I'm afraid of people. The internet is really a vessel for what we pour into it. And so I think in the things we've talked about today, we've seen both the dangers and the potential um, the potential opportunities of digital technology for religious activism.
0: I don't know if you said activism or hacktivism.
1: Activism. Activism. I'll say it naturally. It could no, work. Activism. It could
0: work. I mean, hacktivism, it might be a thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm, my current research project is... Partly uh, focusing on how uh, activists are using social media to form transnational solidarities uh, and, 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 and in, in promotion of social justice, but we know from from, uh, from ongoing experience that digital media can have more nefarious uh, dimensions uh, and dangerous usages, and troll farms and bots are one aspect of that. But I, I I do think information and disinformation, although they've always existed, are are a new sort of terrain in which to do religious studies, uh, uh, as much as to do as to uh, a range of other academic type 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 work. Absolutely. Right? And it's a new terrain on which we're finding religion and politics entangled in, in interesting and complex ways. I was just going to say, but, you know, Dan has been offering some really good clarity. And I I hope I did, too, uh, about how we can think through some of this in relation to Ukraine.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I also feel like it's worth mentioning, because it's very easy to talk about, you know, information, disinformation, fake news in a negative way right like sure like we know to some extent that like what is being produced is factually incorrect but at the same time what i think becomes fascinating for like a scholar of religion but others as well is that well we know there's there's not like a truth right we all know like knowledge is created knowledge is constructed and we can certainly agree upon things and and this is something that we talk about in our field all the time right like this is a a difficult and kind of problematic topic to just claim that there is a, a, you know, capital T truth that we can discuss. And so in that sense, like fake news, like, well, it kind of all is in a way. Right. And that's, that's also partly why it's so infuriating because there are groups of people who are arguing certain points and some very ineffectively without really any data to back up what they're saying. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're all constantly kind of producing knowledge and, and the way that truth is constructed and comes into play in, you know, social and political worlds doesn't necessarily and won't always necessarily reflect how everyone's, you know, feels, thinks about different ideas.
2: Yeah. I, I, I wonder if, if truth is where we should be focusing. Um, yeah. What we're talking here is about use of evidence and how over time accounts of states of affairs create objectivity Mm. or create an objectivity yes knowledge is produced from partial perspectives yes knowledge is limited but at the same time objectivity is something that through generating and comparing different accounts we can arrive at some kind of trust in the, the information we have about the world that we live in so it's not that there's one true account and and then and there's a whole bunch of false ones it's more that there are some accounts where are using evidence in a way that is accountable to the audience and there are some that are not um, yeah and, exactly and, and i think um and i think that's how we should approach it not on the not on the true false issue but on the accountability issue
0: Right. And I think that's really where my interest comes in, because those conversations often lend themselves more to, you know, there is a truth that is just being misrepresented. And and that can lead to, you know, the sort of proliferation of fake news, because if if certain groups are able to construct certain types of knowledge in unreliable and unverifiable ways, but still create a, a narrative that is compelling enough. And we assume that there is something there that's just, we can ignore the relevant information and research because we know there's a truth there, then, then that actually makes it possible and much easier for what we what we now you know, think about as fake news or misinformation to become widely accepted.
1: Paul, earlier you mentioned the new atheists Um, I taught about them last fall in my class on religion and science, and my students were of the opinion that some of those comments from the 2000s of the Hitchens, Dawkins, Golden Age really have not aged well. Now, aside from Christopher Hitchens saying that women were not capable of humor, which was just blatantly sexist, uh, more to our point, the new atheists always assumed that religion is almost always irrational, with very few exceptions. Um, Hitchens got along with Francis Collins, for instance, Dr. Collins, but here we have religious actors in some cases saying to be, we must be critical informers. Think of Archbishop Goodziak saying we should be critical, um, critical media consumers. And in, I also say the word informer, we should be producing good messages ourselves. So again, religions can be rational sometimes. they simple narratives. Don't explain the world. And as to your point about objectivity, it's true. We'll never achieve it. There was a book by Peter Novick, which I have not read, but it's called That Noble Dream, and it's about the pursuing the idea of having a truly objective history. Well, it is a dream. We're never going to have truly objective history and overcome bias, but we can have accountability. We can acknowledge our biases as we've been doing in here. We all say a little bit about where we come from, the limits of our own knowledge. We can act in good faith, and I think the idea is that if we do those things, we can produce, if not perfect history, we can produce better history. Um, and then insert your discipline of choice there. Better journalism, maybe even better religion. An essay by Donna
2: Haraway in the yeah. Simmons and Cyborgs book, where mm-hmm. she talks about this, and I and I just think it's a, a really fantastic uh, piece of work on talking about situated knowledge, partial yeah. perspective, accountability. Yeah, we can have a uh, faithful accounts of a real world, right? That's 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 the point. We we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to lose that aspiration, mm-hmm. even though we know the fragility of the knowledge that that we produce. Uh, and, and and what's happening with troll farms and disinformation is that taking advantage of, as it were, taking advantage of that sort of epistemological doubt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the main thing: is is shifting the conversation away from this sort of binary of you know. Just fake news, truth, or you know, misinformation, truth, and and sort of exploring how these different claims and narratives are constructed, and by whom, and why, and all those fun things that Bruce Lincoln talked about in that fourth thesis on method. And uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. I'm looking at the clock now, and this is a good. Please to perhaps wrap up for the day. I want to thank you both, Paul, Dan, for joining us here today for this excellent conversation. And thanks thank you for listening. listening.
1: The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com.
0: Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey And founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson Our features are edited by Savannah Finver And our opportunities digest by Ella Bach Audio editing by Alex Matthews Video editing by Alison Isidore Podcast transcription by
1: Jaden Bartashius, And social media managed by Candice Mixon don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs.
0: And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.